Well, uh, we are just over the halfway point here in this letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. Uh, I want to take just a few minutes before we jump into chapter 8 this morning to review and kind of see the, the big picture again um, before we drill down into the verses. Uh, we're going to take chapter 8 this Sunday, and then next Sunday we'll finish it up. So this will be kind of like a part one today, and then we'll finish chapter 8, Lord willing, next Sunday. The letters of Paul in the New Testament um, are very diverse in their themes and in the way that they approach their subjects uh, and their emphases. For example, in the book of Galatians, Paul kind of takes one sustained argument all the way from the beginning to the end of of the letter. But this book, 1 Corinthians, doesn't have one sustained argument. Um, It addresses one problem in chapters 1 through 4, and then it addressed some reports that Paul had heard in chapters 5 and 6, and then starting in chapter 7, which we've been looking at the last couple of months, all the way to the end, Paul's responding to various subjects that they have written to him about. And this is kind of important for us to understand the argument in chapter 8. So, If you remember back in chapter 1, it wasn't very long as we got into the letter that it became very clear the Apostle Paul was concerned about divisiveness in the church, right? And so, uh, verse 1, or chapter 1, if you want to kind of follow along, I'll read a few verses along the way here. Chapter 1, verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, remember, you don't want to be Chloe's people, right? Um, That there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. You know, the most, you know, we follow Christ. You know, we're the good ones. Is Christ divided? And then he goes off into this long four-chapter discussion of why quarreling in the church is bad, why there shouldn't be divisiveness, the nature of the apostleship, all of that. And we can see that that, that argument's still going, like when we get to chapter 3, for example. Look at verse 3. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So he's still talking about that in chapter 3, and he goes into chapter 4. Then we go to chapter 5, and look at verse, verse 1 there of chapter 5. It starts off like this. It is actually reported that. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul deals with three issues where he is responding to things that he's heard, reports that have reached his ears. And he answers those with, with pastoral care and counsel. So there's a case of incest and church discipline. Uh, lawsuits among believers, sexual immorality, and we spent we went through those chapters. You remember. So these are reports that he heard about, and then in chapter seven, there's a new transition. This is where we've been the last couple of months. Chapter seven, verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so somebody's brought Paul a letter from the Corinthians, and from chapter seven through the rest of the book the various items that the letter is going to deal with are things that are introduced one by one along the way. Now, what's interesting about Paul's response 
is that in many cases, the issues that need to be addressed are not only needing some clarity theologically, but these issues are also causing division in the church. So Paul has to respond to the issue, right, with wisdom, but then he also is trying to pull the church together through all of these things as well because these issues are driving the church apart. So as a result, Paul introduces something that you don't find in a lot of other letters of Paul, but it's very common here in, in 1 Corinthians. Some people call it the, the yes, but argument. The yes, but argument. So he turns to one group and he says something like, uh, yes, 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 you're, you're right, you're right, you're right, but. And he comes in with, with a little angle on that situation. And then he turns to the other group. Um, take a look back at chapter 7 again if you're still there. Um, and look at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but, verse 2, see it? Because of the temptation, he goes on. Verse 8, look down at verse 8. To the unmarried and widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Verse 9, but, he's going to deal with the other side of it. Verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11. But if she does, and he's going to deal with the other side of it. So you see that, right? Developing here in chapter 7, there's this yes, but argument. It keeps recurring over and over and over. And in our chapter here, um, there are two of these uh, in chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols. Um, look in the first verse there. We know that all of us possess knowledge, and he goes on a little further, uh, verse 3. But, and then he picks it up again in verse 4, therefore as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and he goes on in verse 7, however, that has the same force as the but, not all possess this knowledge. So you kind of see that pattern that Paul's working off of here. He's writing in this topical fashion. He's dealing with issues that have been brought up to him, but with a yes, but sort of argumentation. Like, yes, you're right, but we also need to talk about this. Later on, we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, which is where Paul deals with spiritual gifts. That'll be a fun section to get through. Here's chapter 14. And verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Verse 19, nevertheless, there's the but. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he's not only giving apostolic answers to issues, he's also doing it in such a way he's trying to pull the sides together. He's trying to bring the church, the diverse voices in the church, back into unity with itself. And that, that gets really interesting when you get to chapter 11, which we'll, we'll get to here in a little while. Well, I'm not going to lie to you. It's going to be next year sometime. Um, but um, when we get to chapter 11 and verse 17, he's going to deal with the abuse that's taking place at the Lord's table. And he says there, chapter 11, verse 17, 
But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So all the way along, he's been saying, yes, yes, you got that right, but. Yes, yes, that's right, but. Consider this. Yes, yes, but. But in chapter 11, there's no yes. There's nothing to praise. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, he can get to a place, there's no yes, it's all but. I don't commend you. I've got no praise. There's nothing good going on here. Can you imagine talking about the Lord's table in that way? Wow. It's doing more damage than good. Might as well stay home. It's useless. Isn't that striking? Well, we'll get to that in time. Let's come back to 1 Corinthians 8. Here, the yes, but argument kind of turns out to be right at the heart of what the apostle is saying. Now, concerning food offered to idols, let me give you a word of explanation about what's going on here in Corinth. In the streets of Corinth, of course, like many of the, the, the ancient cities, there were many open marketplaces in the city, places where you could go and buy what you needed. But some of the most interesting marketplaces were at the back of the pagan temples. Um, so in pagan temples, they would go offer sacrifices to their god, lowercase g. Uh, they would take a slab of meat, you know, they'd cut off of some animal, slap it down there before the altar, and, um, and what would happen? Well, the idols wouldn't eat the meat, of course. The idols are stone, right? So what are you going to do with the meat? You're going to just throw it up, throw it out, and stink up the neighborhood? Uh, no. What you're going to do is you're going to sell it out the back door and make a little money off the side. So not only that, they would charge extra sometimes for the meat that had been offered because from the perspective of some people, this is meat that's been offered to an idol, so it should be worth more. It's really, really special meat. In fact, several temples in the city of Corinth had dining rooms in them where feasts were held on many occasions right in the temples, uh, including birthdays. You could go to the temple to have your birthday meal. One author wrote, temples were the restaurants of antiquity. Unquote. So if you had means, and clearly some in the church at Corinth did, you could eat right in the temples, or you could get the specially priced meat from the market in the back. You might even brag about it a little bit. When we get to chapter 10, because chapters 8, 9, and 10 kind of form a big unit of thought about idolatry, and when we get to chapter 10, some people are going to be boasting. You know, they might get a nice big beef roast and bring it home and cook it. And just before they offer it at their table to their, their guests for lunch, they might say, this came from the temple of Apollo. You know? And, and you're supposed to be impressed by that, right? But on the other hand, there are people in the church at Corinth who are saying, well, now that we've become Christians, should we be eating meat offered to idols? Doesn't that mean we're participating in the idolatry? And so the church became divided. You had this camp saying, there's no problem. Eat the meat. There's this camp saying, stay away from it. 
and they're being divided. And they're being divided over an issue that really didn't have a lot of precedent in the New Testament church. It wasn't like, you know, Jesus in Matthew 5, you know, is up on the Sermon of the Mount, and he says, now let's talk a little bit about meat offered to idols. There's nothing like that. There's no instruction like that in the Gospels, in the New Testament so far. But um, they wrote to him about this. It's challenging the unity of the church. And so what is Paul going to do about it? Well, that's the question. Um, And so they'd written to him to get his response. And so um, I want to kind of divide this up this morning into uh, just two sections, easy to remember. Uh, Number one, we're going to talk about the real issue, uh, verses 1 through 3. And then um, we'll get to verses 4 through 6. And remember, this is just kind of part one. Uh, we'll finish the, the chapter next week, Lord willing. So before he proceeds to answer the question that they've asked him, he detects a deeper problem, namely the problem of arrogance. It's not just a question of what is the right answer. What should you do with meat that's been offered to idols? It's also the question of the arrogance displayed by some people who at one level might have the right answer theologically. But their arrogance is appalling. And it's not helping. So Paul deals with the deeper issue first. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. Now that knowledge that he has in mind He's going to get to when we get down to verse 4 in just a few minutes. This knowledge, he says, going on, puffs up, but love builds up. Now, that's not saying uh, the familiar saying that we say sometimes that it doesn't matter how much you know uh, as long as you love. It's not necessarily saying that. It's saying that at the end of the day, knowledge can be a way of hurting people. Have you ever been in a small group Bible study? Um, And don't point any fingers. Uh, But have you ever been in a small group Bible study where there's that one person in the group who has a little bit more knowledge than everybody else? You know, a little bit more experience. Maybe they've been to Bible college and gotten some training or, or whatever. And they always kind of have the last theological word on everything in the study. You know those people? Now, I'm not talking about those situations where you have someone who's knowledgeable and helpful and you might look to them regularly for some good insight, but, but they're humble, right? And they're seeking to edify everybody. I'm talking about the person who, at, you know, at the end of the study, you don't want to say it out loud, but you're thinking in your heart, what a show-off, okay? Those people. We know that all of us possess knowledge. That's what they're saying. And there's a sense in which that's true. We'll see that in a minute. But even if you have the right answer, you have to be aware of the fact that knowledge can just make some people arrogant. Puffs them up. Bloats them. That's what it means. Knowledge puffs up. Genuine love doesn't make people arrogant by definition. Genuine love builds people by definition builds them up so if you do have knowledge we all have knowledge and that's in quotes there because um, 
there's, no, there's not quotes in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, but we're, we're assuming, because of the flow of the language here, we're assuming that when, when you see the little quotes here, we'll see a few of them along the way, th- these are, he's taking this from what they wrote to him. So this would have been like a quote that they used in their questioning to him. We know that, quote, Corinthians, all of us possess knowledge. So look at verse 2. If you've got knowledge, look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, Paul says, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So if more knowledge has made you more arrogant, your knowledge is a curse. It's not going to help the body of Christ. The most knowledgeable people in just about any field have above all learned how little they know. And I speak this from a long-time class attender. And there's many of you here, too, that have been through college and master's degrees and some postgraduate degrees. You know, as well as I do, that no matter if you're studying mathematics or microbiology or engineering or the Bible, the more you study in a particular area, you've certainly learned a lot more than you used to know, right? But... You also, at the same time, see a larger world out there, a much larger world of knowledge, and you know you don't know a lot more than you thought you did. Genuine knowledge and and, and something that's well-learned, that's truly learned, should generate a certain amount of humility. And I think that's what Paul's after here. You don't know anything compared to what you should know. And if theology, especially knowledge about the Bible, if it puffs us up, if it makes us arrogant, it's not edifying anybody. It's just puffing up our egos. We don't want that. So look at the contrast. Verse 3. If anyone loves God, and then you'd expect him to say, what at the end of that? Uh, Well, those people are really mature, right? Or you might expect him to say, if anyone really loves God, then he's going to build up other people. You'd expect him to say something like that. But he twists the whole argument. Look what he says. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Isn't that stunning? The whole thing has been ratcheted up to the level of our relationship with God. Not just among ourselves, as people to people. Our relationship to God. So the heart of sin is alienation from God, right? But the heart of redemption, the heart of salvation, is knowing God and being known by God. And whoever loves, Paul is saying, has been so transformed by the gospel of God that there is wonderful evidence of this truth in the fact that they're known by God. It's like God is saying, uh, Judy is mine. Bob is mine. You know? Jackie is mine. And it's evidenced by the fact that you love him. So that's the real issue right off the start. Before, we, before he even answers the question, it doesn't matter what knowledge you have if you don't love. Then Paul resumes his, his argument here in verse 4. So he starts off with the real issue underneath, and now he gets to, secondly, the right answer, verses 4 through 6. 
Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, here's another one of those quotes, an idol has no real existence. This is how they're making their case. We're right. We can eat the meat because an idol has no real existence. So, one group is saying, come on, Paul. We know that eating meat offered to idols can't do any harm. An idol doesn't count for anything. It's just stone or wood, whatever. There are no real gods other than the one true God in the world. There's only one God. So Paul, this means nothing. Apollos, just an idol of stone. Uh, No power in Apollos. Same for Zeus. Same for Aphrodite. Same for Venus. Same for Neptune. They're nothing at all. So slop down some meat in front of them. It doesn't affect the meat in any way. So we all know an idol has no real existence. And then probably a quote again. And that, quote, there is no God but one, unquote. Now, this would flag in the Jewish mind right away, this kind of a statement, because there was something that the Jews said two times a day that goes all the way back to the beginning of the teaching of the law in the Old Testament. And it's something that you're familiar with. You know that as soon as I read it, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. And that's back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. And so go ahead and turn there for just a second. Now, you... um, you, you, they might have gotten a clue even before that that he was going to Deuteronomy 6 in his mind because of the love that he mentioned. Because in Deuteronomy 6, he also talks about loving God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind and strength. So look at verse 4, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, This is called the Shema in the Hebrew uh, language. The Shema is the word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Monotheism, one God. So one of the implications of monotheism is that all the rest of the gods, lowercase g, are not really gods at all, right? If you believe in one God, you don't believe in any others. So we know that we're Christians. We have that knowledge. That's what the Corinthians were saying. Look what they go on to say. For although, what Paul goes on to say, for although there may be so-called gods, lowercase g, in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many lowercase g, gods, and many lords, yet for us, for Christians, there is one God, the Father, by the way, this is a great statement of belief right here in 1 Corinthians 8. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. What does that mean? He created, right? And for whom we exist, right? That, that brings to my mind Revelation 4.11. We were created for your pleasure, O Lord, right? And, well, this is new. This wasn't, in, this wasn't in Deuteronomy 6. And, not only one God, and one Lord. Well, we had the word Lord before, but Paul identifies the Lord, doesn't he? 
one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He sustains us, right? And he was, he was involved in creation as well. Now, that's a great statement, great doctrinal statement right there. And it also shows that Jesus is God, right? Shows the deity of Christ right there in that statement. Very important statement. The Christians in Corinth believed this. We know this. This is the knowledge we already have. If we're Christians, we know this. There's one God, one Lord, Jesus Christ. That's the yes part of the argument. The but is going to come up next week in verse 7. When he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. So this morning, Paul is in agreement. He is agreeing with the Corinthians. You have got the right answer. Yes, 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 yes. We want to affirm there is one God, one Lord. He's agreeing with them. And because of that, he's also agreeing that there is nothing intrinsically wrong with eating meat that would be offered to an idol. An idol is not God. So if meat's been offered to it, it's still just meat. And if you can get a good deal at the backside of the temple, so be it. We all have this knowledge, the Corinthians were saying. Paul agrees, at least to this point. We all have this knowledge, so there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. It's not as if Paul would have said, I know there are some divisions among you concerning adultery. Some of you think adultery is a bad thing, and others of you think it's a good thing. Paul would never have said that to the Corinthian church, right? Some things are just wrong. But Paul is saying, considering what we know about God, considering what we know about idols, there's nothing intrinsically wrong. You're right with eating meat offered to idols. The idol doesn't count for anything. He's he's agreeing with them. And after all, uh, you know, we do know in the Gospels, for example, in Mark 7, verse 19, Mark writes, thus he, speaking of Jesus, thus he declared all foods clean. So if Jesus said all foods are clean, and so you don't have to go by the dietary laws of the Old Testament anymore, if he makes them all clean, then how do they get dirty again just because you slapped them down in front of a pagan stone? This sort of argument is picked up again by Paul in the, the letter he wrote to Romans, which we should look at briefly. Turn to Romans chapter 14. It's a little different argument, but it's relevant. Look over in Romans 14 and verse 5. We'll start in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his or her own mind. Was it Friday or Saturday? I looked on my phone and it said it was National Dog Day. Anybody else see that? Oh, we're all suckers for our phones, aren't we? Um, So I guess somebody could take that and say, 
Well, it's National Dog Day. All of us should take the day off and honor our dogs. We should walk them. We should give them extra treats. We should play with them, bathe them perhaps. It's always a good idea. We should treat them with wonderful respect. After all, God created dogs. And another group says, come on, dogs are just dogs. Dogs aren't like humans. We don't, we don't, we don't elevate them, you know. You know, you want to honor dogs, you know, we're not going to honor dogs. In fact, we're, we're going we're gonna to diss the dogs. And, and, and something silly like that. But Paul, Paul, and Paul here is probably talking about the Sabbath day, right? And other feast days in the Jewish calendar. But he says, one person says, a day is better than another. Someone else says, all the days are the same. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? You can't imagine the apostle saying, one person regards adultery to be a good thing. Another person regards adultery to be a bad thing. Let each be fully persuaded in their own mind. You'd never hear the Apostle Paul say something like that, would you? Because the Old Testament makes it clear, as well as the Apostle Paul. Look where we've just been, you know, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. Adultery is always a bad thing. There's no excuse for it. It's always condemned in Scripture. You could say that about a lot of things. The same is true of covetousness or bitterness sometimes we we can understand why a person's acting a certain way but it's not justified so whatever paul has in mind here when he says one day is better than another clearly for paul he's saying neither one of these two positions is condemnable right verse six the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the lord the one who eats eats in honor of the lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Go down a little further, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Down to verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. So in chapter 14, what is at issue is not what's intrinsically wrong. It's not intrinsically evil. It's a disputed matter a matter of opinion and it's disputed by good people on both sides who are both accepted by the lord so what are you going to do with it paul what are you going to do with this matter of eat meat offered to idol what are you going to do with it the church is being divided over it you say that so far they're right about some things particularly in response to God and idols. So what are we going to do to resolve the tension in Corinth? For that, you'll have to wait till next week. And we'll pick it up in verse 7 with his but. 
and, uh, and however, and see where he takes us from there. So let me ask the praise team to come on back, and we'll close with a song here in just a few minutes. While they're coming, can you think with me just for a minute about some takeaways from this first section of chapter 8 this morning? I'll start you off, and then you give me a couple too. There are things in the church that people will disagree about that are not maybe what we would call top-tier issues. They're not gospel issues, essential to faith issues. Can you think about some things in our day that might fall into that category? You probably don't have to think you probably don't have to think too long, do you? There's a whole lot of things like that, right? So um, just think about that. Also, the more important issue, according to Paul, seems to be not just that we have the right answer. Now, does Paul want us to have the right answer? Yes. He wants us to know the right theology. But more importantly than just having the right answer is that we also have the right love. And that starts with a love for God, whom we are known by, and because he first loved us, like we sang about earlier. Another takeaway. There is only one God and one Lord Jesus. That is a critical part of our belief as Christians, as Bible believers. And they, God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they deserve our worship because of who they are. Nothing else deserves our worship. And so we need to think with Paul about how to deal with issues like this without causing division in the church. And we will. We'll think with him through the rest of his arguments next Sunday. A couple other takeaways. What, what stands out to you from the text this morning? A truth or a principle, or an application. Let me just take three. You can talk back. Judy? Yeah. Humility, right? No matter how mature you are in Christ, no matter how much you've, knowledge you've gleaned, no matter if you're in a Bible study and everybody else are dumbbells, and you're the one who knows everything, have some humility, right? Have some love. And share what you know, share what is true in that way, in a loving, humble way. Good. Something else? Who else has got one? Did I, did I give you too many of them? You can't think of any more? Okay, Brother Andy. No one else is going to say anything else. Please, you're welcome. Uh, it seems to me that um, the underlying theme of First Corinthians is vision body of Christ. And when we begin to say, I am a Paul, I am a Peter, I am so-and-so, it is when we elevate these second-tier issues to first-tier issues. And that's a very dangerous uh, place for the church to be in, because whether we're conscious of it or not, functionally, that is what we are calling our gospel. Amen. One more. Who's got one more? Wait, Jen. There's only one true God. Yep. There's only one true God. 
it's good for us to think about that when we live in a world that talks about American idols. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you you should never watch a thing that might be called that. But um, is it not revealing? And do we not worship people like that? Mm-hmm. Our world does, yeah. Things to think about, right? One true God. All right, let's stand together. We'll close with a song. It's our song of the month. We've been learning, and uh, we'll sing it this last time here. Um, and then um, we'll have our benediction. Um, and then uh, stick around. We'll take just a, a quick break. We'll, tr- we'll start right at 11, maybe a few minutes before. Just gather right up here in the first couple of sections. And uh, Brother Andy and his family will share with us from their ministry in Spain.